Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm a Christian, and this is my story. Growing up, I never missed going to church. When I was 12, I accepted Christ as my savior. I was even baptized. It, it undoubtedly was a very important decision. It even affected how I lived in high school. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I had fun on the weekends. I had a girlfriend, a couple, but I was a normal high school kid. College was one big blur, but I did make it to church out of obedience. And after school, I married a great girl, and she's been a great influence on me. Life's been good. I have a house, three kids. I couldn't ask for more. I mean, sure, I worry about my future. I mean, my marriage, it could be better. And I need to spend more time with my kids, but, but things will be all right. I have my faith. You may not hear me talk about it a lot, but that's, it's just because it's personal. But don't worry for me. My Jesus is real. Matthew chapter 5, and we continue in this series of messages entitled Blessed, looking at these eight Beatitudes. Some say nine, but I'm including verse 10 and verse 11 together because they both deal with persecution. I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And here's where we are today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. The Beatitudes... In the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous texts of Scripture that you can find. A lot of people can quote some of the Beatitudes or at least get an idea or have an idea of what they are supposed to be, but a lot of times we find ourselves, much like this man that was on the screen here a few moments ago, we're very hypocritical, we're very uh, duplicitous. We say one thing and we do another. We are involved in certain actions, but our hearts aren't there, not committed in the same fashion. And today we're talking from this beatitude in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we start today, let's just take a moment and let's be reminded that the Beatitudes are a little bit like a mountain, if you will. We live in a mountain estate. It's a little bit like a mountain. In the first three, you're moving up the slope. 
You're poor in spirit and you're mourn and you're, you're meek. You have strength that's under control. And what they remind us of is that we're spiritually bankrupt. We're broken in sin and over sin and we're in need of self-restraint. But when you get to the fourth one, you're sort of at the pinnacle of the mountain. And in that fourth one, we're reminded that we have to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when we do that, we'll be filled and satisfied. But then these next three, one that we saw last week, one this week, and one next week, it's like coming down the other side of the hill. These are, this is the outcome. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, this will be the outcome of our lives. We will be merciful. We'll be pure in heart. We'll be peacemakers in this life. And so these three beatitudes result from the filling of the righteousness of God that we were hungering and thirsting for. And consequently, we become people of mercy and purity. So what does it mean when he says, I want you to be pure in heart? I hope you'll listen carefully today because this is a very tough one on all of us. It's been tough on me preparing It'll be tough on all of us as we consider it together. But what does he mean when he talks about being pure in heart? You'll, you'll remember early on in the ministry of Jesus Christ that he was calling together his disciples, specifically the apostles. He had called uh, Philip and Andrew and Peter and James. But on one occasion, he comes to Philip and he says, I want you to follow me. And Philip begins following Jesus, but he first goes and finds Nathanael. Remember that story? He goes and finds Nathanael and he says, Nathanael, you've got to come see this one. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is the one that we've been longing for and we've been waiting for. And of course, Nathanael is like a lot of people. You know, sometimes he speaks before he thinks about what he's about to say and and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth is this little town. It's, it's barely even in, in existence. It's hardly even there compared to many of the other places where the Messiah could come. He's, he's going to come out of that insignificant little place called Nazareth. That's what he's thinking inside of himself. But he comes along with Philip. And when Jesus sees him coming... Uh, Jesus speaks to him and says that he had seen him under the tree and he already knew who he was. And of course, Nathaniel is overcome with what Jesus knows about him before Jesus even knows him. But in the midst of all of this conversation that's going on, Jesus says about Nathaniel that he is an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. He is an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Now, you have to think about this for a moment to understand everything that Jesus wants us to know. He's an Israelite. You remember Israel was, that's his name after he was changed. It was changed from Jacob to Israel. And do you know the story of Jacob and his brother Esau and how Jacob ends up with the blessing and the birthright by using a deceitful means to take it away from his brother? And he, he's comparing him to Israel. He's an Israelite, one of those who in the past has been like his father, Jacob, who's now named Israel. He's been like those who are deceitful. But this one who's coming toward me, this man named Nathaniel, that deceit is not in him. 
He is a man in whom is no deceit. Do you think it's deceitful when we stand and we sing songs about giving all to Jesus, but when we leave, we hold on to as much as we possibly can? Do you think it's deceitful when we say we love Jesus with all of our hearts, but we don't show up for church services and we never put our hands to the plow and go to work in his service? Do you think it's deceitful when we tell others that Jesus is the most important one of, in our lives? No one supersedes his priority in our lives, and yet we won't step forward and we won't follow him in believers' baptism, publicly confessing him before others? Do you think that's deceitful? Absolutely. That's deceitful. And when Jesus sees Nathanael coming at him, he says, here is an Israelite, not like the ones before, who have been deceitful in their hearts and in their lives, who have said one thing and done another, who have done some things but whose heart was not in it. He's not like many of those Israelites. Here is a man in whom there is no guile. There is no falsehood. There is no pretense. There is no mask. There is no costume that he's wearing. Here is a man who is genuine and who is sincere through and through. This word pure is used in a number of different contexts. It speaks of something that's been cleaned like clothes that have been washed. Or it speaks of grain that has been winnowed and it's been sifted and the chaff has fallen away. It speaks of an army that's been purged of all discontented, fearful, unwilling, and inefficient soldiers, and they're left with only the most courageous of the men to fight. It speaks of metals that's been heated, metal that's been heated up to its molten state, and the alloy is taken off so that the metal is as pure as it can possibly be. One person defined this idea of pure this way. He said, this purity is an internal integrity that is expressed in outward behavior. Another said, and you're going to see the consistency of these definitions, it is a consistency between outward behavior and inward thought. Still another scholar defines it this way, it is an internal integrity that transparently manifests itself in outward behavior. In other words, to be somebody who was without deceit, to be somebody who was pure in heart, is somebody who's not just going through the motions of their Christianity, but who has a heart that is fully and wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this beatitude that we're looking at today demands from us the most exacting spiritual self-examination. For us to look within our hearts and say, are we genuine? Are we sincere? Or are we merely going through the motion and our hearts are a million miles away? As a matter of fact, my mind has already drifted out of this service to what else I have to do the rest of the day. It's a little bit of what David was saying in Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, when he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, you can put on a front 
and you can go through the motions and you might convince many people, but you know in your heart that something is not right. You know in your heart that you're not doing it from the very depths of your being. And it elicits the kind of questions like these. If, is our work done for, from motives of humility or from motives of pride? Is our service selfless or about self-recognition? Is our church attendance to meet God or to fulfill an obligation? Is our prayer or Bible reading from a desire to fellowship with God or to fulfill an obligation? Is our church giving done with the sincerest generosity or do we just do what appeases our conscience so that we can feel like we don't have to live with that guilt because we haven't been participating? You understand what he says when he says the pure in heart? It is the willingness to let God probe our deepest motivations. And when we allow him to do that, inevitably, we come back convicted. Because I'm going to tell you something that's true of every person on the planet, no matter how good a Christian they may be. Every one of us has a measure of hypocrisy in us. And oftentimes, our hearts and our actions don't match up as they should. This idea of being pure in heart is calling for the kind of sincerity that goes to the very core of our being. This beatitude to be pure in heart is so that we'll be pure through and through. It's the type of introspection that moves the test of Christian character from observable actions alone to hidden to, to hidden inclinations. Let me say it again. This type of introspection moves the test of Christian character from observable actions alone to hidden inclinations. Lord, I want to be pure in heart. I want it to go to the very core of my being. I want there to be a sincerity and a genuineness that issues forth where I'm not covering up what is really going on in the inside, but what is going on on the outside matches and measures up to what is going on in the inside. That there is that kind of sincerity, that kind of genuineness. Let's remember that the heart here speaks of the core of a person. It is the place where we think, we feel, and we determine our actions. It's the innermost part of a person where decisions are made and attitudes are formed and actions are, are contemplated. To be pure in heart is to be pure throughout. It amounts to an internal integrity that manifests itself in proper outward behavior. I grew up during, during a time when there was a lot of legalism, and you got a long list of things that you could and you couldn't do, and you checked it off. I did this, and I didn't do that, and I did this, and I didn't do that, and I did this, and I didn't do that, and the result of that was that we had a lot of people that were being conformed, but they weren't being transformed. Do you understand the difference? They were being like putty shaped by this outward legalism, but there was never a change in their hearts that resulted in actions that demonstrated the depths of their love for Jesus Christ. 
There's an internal integrity that manifests itself in outward behavior. It denotes one who loves God with all his or her heart and serves with an undivided loyalty and whose inward nature corresponds with his outward profession. Do you get the idea? What he's aiming at here is hypocrisy, duplicity, being deceitful at the core of our being, going through motions that have no heart that are involved, just doing what we think we're required to do, but really not being changed from the inside. I want you to keep your Bible here at Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to turn back with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 24, because this beatitude comes out of Psalm 24, and you see the two sides of what Jesus is trying to say, and you'll see why in just a moment. The two sides of what Jesus was trying to say. Notice verses 3 and 4. He's talking about who can go up to Jerusalem and who can go up to the Temple Mount and who can go up to worship God. Verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? And notice, internal and external. He who has clean hands, that's external, and a pure heart, that's internal who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, that's external, nor sworn deceitfully, that's internal. Do you see that? The, the same thing is given to us in the book of James. You don't need to turn there, but chapter 4, verse 8, if you're making notes, James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, that's external, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Internal and external, they match up. There isn't a duplicity. There isn't a deceitfulness. There is a genuineness and there's a sincerity and there's a reality to the spiritual life that we're living that our heart is in it. Our heart is in it. We're not just going through the motions. There's an old television show that some of you will remember called Leave It to Beaver. Remember that show? Some of you don't know about that show. Trust me, you would do better to go watch Leave It to Be Beaver in black and white than to watch the shows that are on television today. But there was a character in the Leave It to Beaver show that everybody loved to hate. His name was Eddie Haskell. Remember Eddie? Eddie was always getting Wally and Beaver into trouble. And yet, whenever Mr. Cleaver, the father of Wally and Eddie would come, or Wally and Beaver would come into the room, inevitably, Eddie would respond with some kind of a line that goes like this, hello, how are you today, Mr. Cleaver, sir? And you could hear the inflection of his voice. Mr. Cleaver was wise to Eddie. He already knew what Eddie was really like. But whenever he would leave the room, then Eddie would say something to Mr. Beaver that went like this, hey, what is your old man all bent out of shape for, Beaver? And he had this negative tone to his voice. He was one thing in the presence of Mr. Cleaver, and he was something else when he was away and with Beaver and with Wally alone. One thing that the Sermon on the Mount is seeking to do at this point is to expose our hypocrisy and cause us to cry out to God for deeper sincerity. 
that our Christianity goes beyond just the rituals or the routines that we go through, the habits that we've built, and it goes to the very core of our being so that we are a people who are pure in heart. By the way, when you become a person who is pure in heart, there is no problem with the actions that come from that, right? Right? If your heart is pure, your actions inevitably are going to match the purity of heart. This purity of heart is the very reverse. It's the very reverse of what Noah was dealing with in his day. Do you remember what Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says about Noah and the day in which he was living? It says that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. I mean, no matter what they were doing externally, internally, it was all evil all the time. The inclinations of their heart, such that we could actually paraphrase this beatitude to go something like this. Blessed is the person whose inclination is toward purity of heart and purity of action. And if you want to see the quintessential, uh, the quintessential example of what we're talking about, you only have to look at what group of religious people from the day of Jesus the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were fastidious about obeying all of the intricate commands and all of the oral traditions and making sure that outwardly they did everything they were supposed to do. But the result was that they were only going through routines and rituals and they had no reality to their hearts. They had no reality to the love that they were to have for Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me for a moment back to Matthew, and I want you to go back with me to Matthew 23. And Jesus is excoriating the Pharisees, the religious people of the day. By the way, the Pharisees were some of the most respected people of the day. We look down on them. We don't think much of them because we have the whole picture of what they were really like. But in that day, in the first century, when Jesus was living, People respected the Pharisees. They thought of them as being uh, the most pious of the pious. They thought of them as being the most religious of the religious. I mean, that's the kind of people they viewed themselves. But Jesus comes and Jesus exposes them for what they are. Notice at verse 13 of chapter 23. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. What's the word? Hypocrites. Verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Or down to verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Or verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. What do you think Jesus thinks about hypocrisy? What do you think Jesus thinks about the duplicity of our lives where we have a public persona and we have a private one that doesn't match, that isn't the same? 
What, what do you think Jesus thinks when we go through the motions of our Christianity, but our hearts are far, far, far from him? What do you think Jesus thinks about that? Go back to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. And look what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. Look how he talks about there being a singleness, there being no double-mindedness, that there is to be no hypocrisy and no duplicity, that we are to be from our hearts followers of Jesus. Notice verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's external. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart, right? Are you with me? In his heart. Back up for a moment to verse 21. I skipped right over it to verse 21. You have heard that it was said to, the, to those of old, you shall not murder. That's external. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do y'all see what Jesus is doing? He's saying to the Pharisees who were probably listening into this conversation, this message that Jesus is delivering to his disciples, and he's saying, look, don't be like them. They go through the motions they have all the right look. They dress the right way. Everything externally seems to be really good for them. But the reality is, at the core of their being, what does he later say about them? They are full of dead men's bones. They're whitewashed tombs. You know what they would do with tombs in those day, days? They would whitewash them. It not only made them look better and identified them, because if you stepped on a dead body, even if it was in the ground, if you stepped on a dead body, you were instantly unclean, and you had to go through a process to become clean again, to be able to go to the temple and worship. So they marked the tombs, but in the process of marking the tombs so you didn't wrongfully step on them, they made them beautiful. But he said, you're like these beautiful tombs. Everybody stops and says, wow. It's like going to Arlington Cemetery and seeing those rows after row after row after row of those headstones of those soldiers who have been buried there. I mean, it's, it's, it's awe-inspiring, isn't it? It's awe-inspiring when you see it. And seeing those tombs marked that way was an awe-inspiring sight. But he says, the reality is, while the outward side of the tomb may look beautiful, what's on the inside is nothing more than dead men's bones. He says on another occasion, you're like a cup, and the outside of the cup is really clean. And I meant to bring a glass today to show you this. The outside of the cup is really clean. You ever had milk in a, in a glass, a, a, a clear glass? And you drank it all up, and you didn't wash it. You left it just sitting there, and the milk sort of got milky. The, what, what do you call it? Yeah, the film on the inside of the glass. See, I have to have help with sermons. The, the film on the inside of the glass. You, you could wipe the outside of the glass all you want. Would you want to drink out of that glass? Let's just pour a Coke in there. Let's... That's, that's a spiritual drink. Let's just pour a Coke in there and let's drink out of that. He said about the Pharisees and the religious people, you're like those who are clean on the outside, but you are dirty 
on the inside. You know what I'm talking about. These are the people, to give you an extreme example, these are the people who talk about how much they love God and they'll come to church and sing the praises of God and, and they'll look really good on Sunday and on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. They, they're surfing for pornography. Or they're lying. Or they're cheating. Or they're stealing. Or any other number of things. Outwardly, they look wonderful. Inwardly, they're as dirty as dirty can be. And Jesus says, if you're going to see God, you've got to be somebody who's pure in heart, understanding that none of us will ever be as pure as we need to be. We, we are pure positionally before God. We have been made righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But practically, all of us are a work in progress. And all of us need every day for God to be searching our hearts and exposing where we're dead men's bones, where we're dirty glasses on the inside and saying, oh God, I want my external actions to first be precipitated by an internal love and devotion to you. He continues to do this. If you look over at chapter, uh, chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, Notice what he says, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to be single-mindedly following the Lord Jesus or you're going to be single-mindedly following someone else or something else. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's money. You cannot serve God and money. Look back, if you will, in chapter 6 at verses 5 and 6. Notice what he says here. Let's go to verse 2. Let's start with verse 2. He says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your hand know what your do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do you see what he's saying? Don't make it flashy where everybody looks at you, but your heart's not in it. Do it privately and quietly. He goes on, if you will, in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and you have, when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who is in, in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Or look over at verse 16. Verse 16, same chapter, chapter 6. Moreover, when you fast, do not, let the hip, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. You hear what he's saying? I don't want you to go through this pretentious kind of life where you're just putting on the front. We used to say it in Georgia, putting on the dog. And that was spelled D-A-W-G. Putting on the dog. You know, you're just putting on the front 
So everybody will think, oh, man, look how spiritual. Look how much they pray. And they pray out in public. Everybody can listen to them. Everybody can hear them. And when they give, hey, they make sure it's all in coins so that it rattles when it hits the plate. Jesus says his followers aren't supposed to be those kinds of people. Now, look, if you're not convicted at this moment, then I don't know who you're listening to because I'm convicted at this moment. This is not who we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be playing the part. We're supposed to be genuine and real about our spiritual lives. It's supposed to issue forth from our hearts. And when our hearts aren't crying out for God and desiring to serve God and to love God and to obey God, crying out from our hearts first, when they're not doing that, then the problem isn't your external activities. The problem is your heart. And we have to get back and we have to say, oh God, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And do you notice what he says here in chapter 5, verse 8? Notice what he says here. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who aren't hypocritical, those who are sincere and genuine, that issue forth from a heart that loves God into actions that demonstrate that love. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you know what it means to see God? Well, certainly there's eschatological implications. That's future implications about the kingdom that is yet to come. But there's practical implications to this as well. What does it mean to see God? It means that we can see him in our circumstances and in nature. We can see him in the faces of our children and our grandchildren. We see him in his works and in his word and in his son. We see him because our hearts are genuine and real and our hearts are pure before the Lord. We see him even in communion and prayer. Dr. W.A. Crystal was a famous pastor, pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas for like 45 years. He wrote this about it. This metaphor is taken from usages of the oriental courts where kings lived in great seclusion and held conversation with their subjects by means of a trusted official. This official would come into the royal presence any time, day or night, because the king knew that the trusted official had no other purpose but to serve. Do you get what, you get, you get what he's saying? There was the trusted official who only wanted to serve, who had access to the king anytime he needed access to the king. Don't you want to see God that way? Don't you want to see God where you have access to him at any moment, where you can see God around you every day in the world in which you live? You say, preacher, have you seen the world we live in? Yeah, but you know God is still working. And God is still afoot in our midst and God wants us to have communion and fellowship, and he wants us to see him in the activities and the actions of our lives. But you'll never see God unless you're pure in heart, unless you're seeking that kind of inner purity that issues forth in outward actions that are the demonstration of that inner motivation. And I want you to notice one other thing. He says, blessed are the peacemakers for they, the word they, the pronoun they is in the emphatic. 
In the Greek text, it means for they and they alone shall be called. Excuse me. For they and they alone shall see God. For they and they alone shall see God. Do you see it? You want to see God? I want to see God. I want to see God around me every day. I want to see God in my family. I don't mean that they are God. I mean see God at work. I want to see God when I open his word. I want to see God when I come to church. Do you realize that some people come and say, Pastor, I don't get anything out of your sermons. I don't get anything out of your sermons. The problem might not be my sermons. Now, it could be, but it might not be my sermons. It could be, but it might not be my sermons. It might be your own heart that isn't receptive and ready to be pure leaving out the deceit, doing away with the deceit, confessing the deceit, seeking to be genuine and real and sincere to the very core of your being. Can I tell you, I am tired of preachers who are hypocrites, who get up and preach great sermons and live like the devil the rest of the time. They're hurting all the rest of us in the process. Are you with me? Now I'm preaching. <laughs> they're hurting all of the rest of us, and more importantly, they're hurting the cause of Jesus Christ. Hey, I've been here 39 years. It'll be 40 years in December. 40 years. Oh, man. <laughs> 40 years. I mean, I don't know anything that I can hide from you. I mean, just about everything about me, you pretty well know. And you know my shortcomings, and you know my strengths, the two or three that I have. You know my shortcomings, the hundreds that I have. But I think there's one thing that you would say about your pastor, and I hope you will always say about your pastor, and that is he might not be perfect, but he's genuine, and he's real. And he's seeking to love God. And he's not one man one day and another man the next day. I have highs and lows emotionally. I have moments when I believe God and some moments when I don't believe God. But when I'm out of, I'm out of tune where I'm not supposed to be, you know, the notes aren't matching up. The internal note and the external note aren't matching up. I'm seeking God. God, I don't like this. This isn't the way I'm supposed to live my life. God, you've got to help me because I want to see you. I want to see you. R. Kent Hughes is a pastor and an author. He writes a story about a woman who was blind. Listen to this story as I read it to you. In 1982, the Los Angeles Times carried the story of Anna Mae Penica. I hope I pronounced that right. A 62-year-old woman who has been blind, who was blind from birth. At age 47, she married a man she met in Braille class. And for the first 15 years of their marriage, he did the seeing for both of them until he completely lost his vision to retinitis pigmentosa. Mrs. Pinnaca had never seen the green of spring or the blue of a winter sky. Yet because she had grown up in a loving, supportive family, she never felt resentful about her challenge and always exuded a remarkable, cheerful spirit. Then in October 1981... Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute of the University of California at Los Angeles performed surgery to remove the rare congenital cataracts from the lens of her left eye. 
And Mrs. Pinnacle saw for the first time ever. The newspaper account does not record her initial response, but it does tell us that she found that everything was so much bigger and brighter than she ever imagined. While she immediately recognized her husband and others she had known well, other acquaintances were taller or shorter, heavier or skinnier than she had pictured them. I hope I would have been skinnier. Since that day, Mrs. Pinnaca has hardly been able to wait to wake up in the morning, splash her eyes with water, put on her glasses, and enjoy the changing morning light. Her vision is almost 20-30, good enough to pass a driver's test. He finishes by saying, think how wonderful it must have been for Anna Mae Pinnaca when she looked for the first time at the faces she had only felt or when she saw the kaleidoscope of a Pacific sunset or a tree waving its branches or a bird in flight. The gift of physical sight is wonderful and the miracle of seeing for the first time can hardly be described, but as wonderful as that is, can you imagine having 2020 spiritual vision and being able to see God every single day? Hey, that's going to be the reality when we get to heaven. Right now, we walk by faith, not by sight. But wouldn't it be awesome every single day to look around us and say, you know, God's working there. I see God's hand in that. You know, God is the one who gave me these grandchildren. God always gives grandchildren. I'm not sure about children, but he always gives, he always gives grandchildren. I see God at work in this problem. I see God at work in this job situation. I see God at work. I see God when I open his word. I see God when I come to church and I hear the preaching of his word. I see God. Listen, we want 2020 spiritual vision and it only comes. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they and they alone shall see God. How am I going to get there, preacher? Number one, you have to stop compartmentalizing your life. You have to stop compartmentalizing your life. Well, this is my business world, and and this is my family world, and this is my sports world, and this is my entertainment world, and this is that world, and that world. Let Let me switch analogies for a moment. Sometimes we look at life like a pie, and we slice it up into pieces. One piece is our work life. Other pieces are our family, our church, our hobbies. Then we have that private piece, you know, that compartment that's filled with secret compulsions and addictions. And then finally, there's a piece we call our friends. And if I've counted right, that's six pieces of pie. Reminds me of a little joke about a guy that bought a pie and his server asked him, do you want want me to cut this into six or eight pieces? And he thought about it for a moment. He says, you better cut it into six pieces because I can't eat eight. The fact is, some of us have so many slices of pie, so many compartments in our lives, and we say to God over and over, "Mm, that's my piece. No, no, Lord, you're welcome here, but you're not welcome over here. Hey, that's the opposite of purity of heart. You understand that being pure in heart, listen to me, I'm almost through. Being pure in heart requires a holistic approach to living our lives. Let me say it again. 
Being pure in heart requires a holistic approach to living our lives. It's not a piece here and a piece there. It's not a compartment here and a compartment there. It is, God, you have full access to every part of my life. And where I am not genuine and real and sincere, where I have outward actions that aren't supported by inward choices and emotions and feelings that demonstrate a love for you, oh God, help me to bring them into alignment with you. There to be no hidden compartments, no secret agendas, and no special pieces. Number two, we must be willing or we must willingly examine our motives. We must willingly examine our motives. I have to tell you, that's the hardest thing in the world to do. But this is a matter of being authentic. That's another word that we're talking about. Being authentic. You're not a phony. It's a matter of being authentic. So that when you're with people, whether it's your family or the governor or teammates or the president or the trash collector or even the queen of England, you're the same, 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 you're the same. I mean You're a Christian, 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 and you believe it and you practice it no matter who you're with. Are y'all with me? In the ancient Greek plays, actors played multiple roles. When they were playing the role of a villain, they put on a mask that had a frowning face. When they were playing the part of the hero, they put on a mask that had a smiling face. God says, take off the masks. Be genuine. Be sincere. Be authentic. Number three, we must seek sincerity in all we do. We must seek sincerity in all we do. Everything. I don't know how much you pay attention to this, but I'm, I'm going to finish up here, so listen carefully. As you well know, our world is obsessed. They are utterly obsessed with outward appearances. That's, that is how a person looks, right? Utterly obsessed. We focus primarily on image more than on character. Mm, I wanted to preach there, but I'm not going to get to If you're good-looking and you have an advanced degree hanging on your wall, you're likely to have advantages over others regardless of the quality of your character. But I want you to understand that God isn't impressed by appearances. He isn't impressed by appearances. Your achievements and your accomplishments and your acquisitions and your looks don't impress the Almighty. I mean, He is the Almighty, He's not amazed by your education or your wealth or your success or your popularity. What God cares about is the attitude of your heart, the purity of your heart. Now listen, he isn't concerned about, he is concerned about the real you, not the social media you. (laughs) Should I say that again? He is concerned about the real you, not the social media you. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) By the way, I just turned the clock off, so I don't know what time it is. (laughs) 
I remind you of what, what God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now look, we're not talking about perfection here. Do you realize that David was called a man who was after God's own heart, Acts 13, 22? I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. We're not talking about being perfect here. At one point, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He orchestrates the murder of Uriah. He watches his own son, Absalom, rebel without any restraint of it. His daughter was raped by her half-brother, Amnon, and he did nothing about it. David certainly didn't do everything right, and he had intense times of confession before God. But do you realize that after David had been dead and his great-grandson, his great-grandson has come to rule the southern kingdom, Abijam, do you realize that David was still the measure for every king? He was still the measure. Listen, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and he, <clears throat> and he walked, that is, Abijam walked in the sins of his father. That's, uh, that's his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. We're not talking about perfection here. But we're talking about people who want to be real and who want to be genuine and who want to be pure in heart.